Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In number 31 of his introductory lectures on psychoanalysis, the one entitled The Dissection of the Psychical Personality, one of the key ideas that Sigmund Freud is explaining to his audience is that of what he calls the superego, the uber-ich, the part of ourselves, according to Freudian psychology, which has a number of important functions, most of which tend to make us unhappy and which we can't completely escape from, but we can at least understand. Now, he's not originating his concept here in these lectures. He's been working with this for a very long time, but he's trying to explain it in as clear and as basic a way as possible. The first mention of it without actually using the term comes in when he talks about patients suffering from delusions of being being observed. They complain to us that perpetually they're being molested by the observation of unknown powers, presumably persons, and they may come with you know auditory hallucinations. So he says, how would it be if these insane people were right? If in each of us there is present in his ego an agency like this which observes and threatens to punish and which in them has merely become sharply divided from their ego and mistakenly displaced into external reality. So he's saying that this is not the case for all of us, but it, but something like this might be going on. There's external reality as opposed to the you, the me, the we that is is the ego, and part of the ego has been projected out there. Instead, although that can be the case for us in unusual circumstances, instead we've got a part of our own ego that has, if we want to use his crystalline metaphor, it's, it's fractured forth outside of ourselves, but still within us. So we don't hear voices coming from outside. Instead, we hear the voice of a term that he's going to use, conscience, telling us, you shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. You're a dirty, dirty animal or whatever else you want to imagine, right? So he talks about this agency that observes and threatens to punish. And that is what is going to be the superego. He tells us, I formed the idea the separation of the observing agency from the rest of the ego might be a regular feature of the ego's structure. And that idea has never left me. I was driven to investigate the further characteristics and connections of the agency, which was thus separated off. So the superego is not, you might say, part of our original equipment right there in the psyche as it's created when a child is born and develops. No, no, it's, it's something that develops out of the ego and it, it's, there's a, sign, a bit of progress here, right? We need to develop a superego in certain respects in order to be normal, progressing, developing properly. But it's also something that we misrecognize as a result. And a little bit early on in this, he says, 
This agency must be what we call our conscience. He's actually going to you know, rebut this in a moment. There is scarcely anything in us that we so regularly separate from our ego and so easily set over against it as precisely our conscience. I feel an inclination to do something I think will give me pleasure, but I abandon it on the ground that my conscience does not allow it. Or I've let myself be persuaded by too great an expectation of pleasure into doing something which to something to which the voice of conscience has objected. And after the deed, my conscience punishes me with distressing reproaches and causes me to feel remorse for the deed. So we often think of our conscience as something within us, which isn't the same thing as the us that does the action, that chooses, that thinks through what's going on. You know, you think about the old-fashioned cartoon way of portraying this, where you've got an angel on one shoulder and you got a devil on the other shoulder. That's conscience. And then, you know, the opposite of conscience, the parts of you that are saying, no, no, go ahead and eat the cake. Go ahead and look at the thing you're not supposed to look at. Go ahead and break the promise. And then conscience is like, no, no, you shouldn't do that. And who do we listen to, the angel or the devil? Well, that determines what we're doing. In more recent cartoons like that of Family Guy, both the angel and the devil are equally stupid and venial. And so a character like Peter can't do much of anything. But in the older cartoons, there's a stark contrast, right? And then you've got the tortured person wavering between them. That would be the ego. So Freud says, maybe this thing is conscience. And he says, no, that's the wrong way to look at this. Because conscience is only one of the functions of this, whatever we're going to call it, this agency that he calls the superego. He tells us it's more prudent to keep the agency as something independent and to suppose that conscience is one of its functions and that self-observation, which is an essential preliminary to the judging activity of conscience, is another function. So conscience judges but only after the superego has already looked at things, looked at what the ego is doing. A little bit later, he tells us some other important things about this notion or this agency of the superego. He's going to tell us that it has a certain autonomy in relation to the ego, meaning that it can operate on its own. It doesn't have to wait for the ego to get itself into a situation. It can plan out the situation in advance to say, you must do things this way and this way and not do those sorts of things. He also talks about it following its own intentions, which is another important aspect of it. Once it's got its own, we could say, its own driving force, it's able to make intentions, orientations, directions for itself. So if, for example, if it's tied together with worries about cleanliness and uncleanliness, it can tell you, you need to go and wash your hands, you filthy pig, or however else it's going to frame itself, or don't touch that person because they're dirty. Don't enter into these sort of situations. The other aspect that's really important as well is he says that it's independent of the ego for the energy that it draws upon. So even if the ego is, we could say, fatigued or worn out or wavering or indecisive, the superego itself can have an energy 
that carries it through independent of the ego, which it originally derived from. So this is a, you know, a set of very important features. Freud talks about three main functions here in this essay. Uh, one of self-observation that we've already talked about, right? So self-observation is the ego originally observing itself, which then becomes the superego observing the ego. Conscience judging itself, usually quite harshly, as Freud is going to point out in this. The superego in part also derives from the parental function, but it only takes the judginess, the meanness, the sternness, the cruelty. It doesn't take the love, the affirmation or any of those sorts of things. Instead, it's, it's kind of, you know, just a mean side, right? And then this thing that, that he calls the ideal, which we're going to get to in a moment. It, it has a function of the ideal, you can say, or I mean, that's the German for it, ideal function. Maintaining the ideal is another way that gets translated here. So he tells us that this is, you know, a very important agency. Now, he's got a really interesting discussion in there about melancholic attacks. This is not a language that we use too much in the present. We tend to think about melancholy as somebody being just sad, being blue. But this is actually a term that goes way, way back in medicine all the way to the Greeks. Melancholis, the black bile that was supposed to produce not just sadness, but also remorse, also anger, even rage, things like that. Melancholy people are not just the ones sitting around graveyards, you know, whining and crying or anything like that. They might be picking up the grave and, you know, stone it, throwing at you. So what Freud is calling a melancholic attack, it's not just being sad. It's where you feel that there's things that you've done that are, you Know, screwed up, that you have made a mess out of things. So here, here we go. He says, hardly have we familiarized ourselves with the idea of a super ego like this, which, as we pointed out, enjoys a certain degree of autonomy, etc., etc. And he says that a clinical picture forces itself on our notice, which throws a striking light on the severity of its agency and indeed its cruelty and its changing relations to the ego. I am thinking of the condition of melancholia or more precisely of melancholic attacks, which you two will have heard plenty about even if you're not psychiatrists. And there's a, a footnote here from Drakey, the translator, who says modern terminology would probably speak of depression, and that's, that's quite right. But there could be other manifestations of this than, than just what we typically call depression. What is the problematic here? He says, the most striking feature of this illness is the way in which the superego treats the ego. While a melancholic can, like other people, show a greater or lesser degree of severity to himself in his healthy periods, during a melancholic attack, his superego becomes over-severe, abuses the poor ego, humiliates it and ill-treats it, threatens it with the direst punishments, reproaches it for actions in the remotest past, which had been taken lightly at the time, as though it had spent the whole interval in collecting accusations that had only been waiting for its present access of strength in order to bring them up and make a condemnatory judgment on their basis, right? So a very long discussion there. What is Freud saying? 
thing. The super ego has like hoarded up these memories of all the ways in which you have screwed up melancholic person and it's going to lay them out for you so you can think them over in the middle of the night or while you're trying to do work or while you're trying to eat or make love or do whatever else and you're going to get not just flashes of these you're going to feel like crap about it because the super ego is going to show you exactly what you are it's doing so through its faculty of judging right he goes on and says it applies the strictest moral standard to the helpless ego which is at its mercy and this is quite interesting right the superego can kind of respond, but its responses are the way Freud portrays it, ineffective against the, the ego can respond to the superego, but it's not a very effective response. That's part of what psychoanalysis is supposed to help out with. You might say defanging to some degree the superego, helping you to, to figure out how to respond to it. And, and you know, if, if we wanted to switch into different modalities, we might say that this is like the negative self-talk that we see cognitive approaches worrying about as well. So he goes on and he says, the superego is representing the claims of morality. We realize all at once, our moral sense of guilt is... Now, notice what he says here. He doesn't say it is just the superego. He says it is the expression of the tension between the superego and the ego. You have to have both of those poles in order to feel that moral guilt. There has to be a conflict between them or the ego has to be the prey of the superego. So a lot of what we call morality is really just the superego telling us we're screwing up or we'd better not screw up and we're going to pay the price if we, if we do. And interestingly, what is the price that we're going to pay? It's the superego being the superego and, you know, telling us things that we don't want to hear. So the melancholic has to deal with this periodically in fits. All of us go through this if Freud is correct at certain times. And then he talks about how the melancholic might be free of the superego for a while and then kind of goes hog wild and, and does whatever they, they want to do. Now, he also talks about, and this is a very important point, the superego emerging through, as he says, here we go. The installation of the superego can be described as the successful instance of identification with the parental agency. Now, what is he talking about as the parental agency? Well, the parents play a role in that, caretakers, we could say. And we're going to talk about this separately and explore it in greater detail, but it's enough to say that it comes from parents expressing things to us, which then the child takes in, internalizes, also looks you know, at the, the parents as ideals. And the other figures can come in as well. Freud talks about school teachers and other authority figures playing a role. And we get this internalized agency of the superego, who you might say is the successor to the parental function, the parental agency. He also talks about another thing. This is what we come back to now, this ideal thing, right? He says, I hope you've already formed an impression the hypothesis of the superego really describes a structural relation and is not merely a personification of some such abstraction as that of conscience. One important function remains to be mentioned, which we attribute to this superego. It is also the vehicle of the ego ideal by which the ego measures itself, right? So there's a using the superego on the part of the 
ego to make sure that it's doing the right things, that it's living up to, you might say, its potential, right? He says it also emulates it. So there's a important role for the ego ideal there as well. And he says, and whose demand for ever greater perfection it strives to fulfill? Isn't that interesting? So the superego, this is one of the problems with it. The superego is never content. It never lets you just fulfill its requirements. After you fulfilled its requirements, it moves the, as we say, moves the goalpost a little bit further and says, oh, you know, you could be this good. Well, you can be this good then instead, or, or at least you've avoided being bad in this sense. Now let's avoid it over here. And so it's never truly satisfied. He goes on and he says, there's no doubt this ego ideal is the precipitate of the old picture of the parents, the expression of admiration for the perfection which the child attributed to them. And, you know, the idea is that the child has a wrong-headed view, but that what they take in, it becomes an important part of their psyche. And so he talks about the superego as, these are his own terms, the representative of every moral restriction, the advocate of a striving towards perfection, he says, it is in short as much as we've been able to grasp psychologically what's described as the higher side of human life. So having a superego is kind of good in some respects, not just because it keeps you out of trouble, but this is actually a facet of human development. And he points out something really interesting here. It's not just our own superego that we're taking cues from. Where did the parents, where did the educators, where did the authority figures get their ideas about how they ought to form and shape and guide and punish and reward us from their own superegos? They were themselves being driven by the same sort of dynamics that we have. And, and there's a really interesting discussion here that I'll look at it in a different point. So he says, a child's superego is in fact constructed on the model, not of its parents, but of its parents' superego. The contents which fill it are the same and it becomes the vehicle of tradition and of all the time-resisting judgments of value which have propagated themselves in this manner from generation to generation. This generates what Freud calls ideologies. And he says, ideologies come to take on a life of their own precisely because they are being handed down. That's what a tradition is. You hand on something to somebody else. So you're handing on this rather contingent, but appearing to be absolutely necessary feature of what we would attribute to human nature. It also involves group dynamics. He says a little bit later, when I made use of the differentiation between the ego and superego in a study of group psychology, I arrived at a formula that a psychological group is a collection of individuals who have introduced the same person into their superego. And on the basis of this, they have identified themselves with one another in their ego. And he talks about this is, this is for groups that have a leader, right? And so he thinks that this is a very important and useful concept for making sense out of what goes on within our personalities and our psychical life. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works. <laughs>